0: You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. So when I was in middle school, I thought my life would be complete if I could just get a motocross motorcycle. And so I kept begging my parents, and what my parents said was, is that your grades aren't very good right now in middle school, Doug, and so if you'll make the honor roll, then we'll buy you a motocross motorcycle. So I worked real hard that semester. I worked hard at school. I made the grades, I made the honor roll, did a good job there. And so now I'm like, pay up, suckers, buy me that motocross motorcycle. And they bought it for me and I was riding like the wind with my friends. We went over jumps, we had a good time. In fact, I brought a picture of my little motocross motorcycle today um, and I just loved riding. It's like my life was complete. I finally filled the void that was in my little heart at that time. But you know what happens is that time passes, doesn't it? And I was getting out of middle school and was turning, about to turn 16, and I wanted a, the next thing. I wanted a car. So I got myself a, you know, a girlfriend, my driver's license, a car, and a part-time job to pay for it all, right? And all of a sudden, the motocross motorcycle that brought so much fulfillment in my life was just taking up space in the garage and had a want ad on it to sell it. And I think that's the cycle that a lot of us go through um, in these lives of ours, and uh, we already know that Um, stuff doesn't fill that ultimate void for us, does it? Because when we grow up, we're told certain things about life, aren't aren't we? How many of you have ever heard, you need to do well in school because if you get good grades, you could get into a good, what, college, right? And if you get into a good college and you do well there, then when you get out, you can get a good, what, job. And if you get a good job, it's one in which you make a lot of money, right? And if you make a lot of money, you can buy lots of stuff or things, right? And we, I think, know intuitively that there's nothing wrong with having certain things and doing well in your career and making good grades. We want you to do that. Uh, But ultimately, there's a deeper level of fulfillment because we know that our stuff just ends up on Craigslist or eBay or in a landfill somewhere. And that's why we've been breaking down what Jesus says in the red letter sections of the Bible and we've looked at this one truth about the dailiness of inner peace. If you look at Matthew 6, 34, remember, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow's gonna worry about itself. Each what? Day has enough trouble of its own. In the Our Father prayer, Jesus says, pray, give us, Today, what kind of bread? Our daily bread. Then in the call to discipleship, Luke 9, 23, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, how often? Daily and follow me. And that's why we've said during this series, and I hope you'll remember this, that change happens daily, not in a day. Uh, A lot of people want change immediately, but we know that it happens daily. Would you say that transforming idea with me out loud, even if you're at at home watching online? Here we go, ready? Change happens daily, not in a day. And I hope, as we repeat that, um, I hope that it'll be burned onto your memory banks. You know, I don't have my feelings hurt, but I know that you don't remember my sermons. I know that. You remember a few Stories and then you remember some of the things that we repeat. And I hope that someday, when you need it the most, you'll remember that truth that change is going to happen daily, not in a day. And so, since we've been talking about this daily change from the Red Letter section of Jesus, we've given you what's called the 84 Day Challenge, where we've got these bookmarks. It has a reading plan to read through the Red Letter sections of the Scriptures. Um, we posted it online. There's a PDF version of our, on our website, also social media, so you can get it there if you hadn't started the reading plan and you'd like to go through it with us. And each week during the Sunday services, we're teaching from the red letter sections of the Bible as well. So let's look at this metaphor Jesus uses to talk about our daily change. And the metaphor is salt and light. Uh, that's in Matthew five thirteen through 16. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can it make you salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Then he goes on to say, "'You are the light of the world, "'like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. "'No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. "'Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand "'where it gives light to everyone in in the house. "'And in the same way, "'let your good deeds shine out for all to see "'so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father.'" So salt and light are like these fundamental elements that we use every day, aren't they? We use salt to season our food. We use light to help us uh, avoid, you know, potential problems in the darkness. And there are several things that salt represents. I mean, we certainly know that salt seasons our food, doesn't it? Um, for the ancient, salt preserved. Their food. In the days before refrigeration, they had to salt down the food to uh, keep it from going bad. Salt also cleanses, doesn't it? That's why when you're a kid, you know, you got a sore throat and your mom has you gargle with what? Salt water, right? Um, Salt also makes people thirsty. That's why they load up the salt on the rim of your margarita, right? Because they want to make you thirsty for more margaritas, don't they? Um, And the Bible says that we should be make people thirsty for the things of God um, by being salt in this world. But if the salt loses its flavor, man, it's not good for anything but to be thrown out, right? Uh, So churches and Christ followers who lose their saltiness um, can't regain it again. So we want to stay salty as a tribe of faith. And light gives us direction, doesn't it? Those of you that are new parents or young parents, you know, you have little toddlers running around, they got all their toys everywhere, you got to have those little night lights around the house because you'll step on a Lego. And those things could paralyze you, man. Legos are sharp edges. Those things are dangerous, right? Um, And so we need light to to get us through. And, you know, uh, the ancients, when they would travel, um, they would see a city, the lights of a city, And they knew how to get home. You know, when I'm traveling home in an airplane, if I have a window seat and I can see the lights of San Antonio, I always get excited because I know that's where home is. And no matter where else I go in the world, I love coming back home to San Antonio. And, you know, as you and I operate as salt and light in the world, we make people thirsty for Jesus. We light the path so that others can see where home is, where Jesus is. And that journey in our church typically has several phases to it. Uh, I want to show those to you today. Um, Typically, people who come here at one point in their life were hurt by church or Christians and don't trust organized religion because um, somehow they'd be disappointed in the past. But then they meet a Christ follower who's really authentic, um, salt and light, you know they may meet one of you guys that really loves them, and you 're a good friend to people and they they come here and once they um, meet someone like you, they become open minded to Jesus and become what uh, we would call a spiritual investigator you know they 're open to the journey and thinking about it, and you may invite them to come to a city tribe meeting you know, like um, the tribal gathering, our worship service and they learn more about what the Bible really says, and not just what you know. I've heard that it might say, um, and then from there, uh, people will understand the implications of Jesus, and that this isn't just little internet means, but eternities are at stake, and our eternal souls are at stake in this endeavor. And sometimes, from there, people will actually come to faith in Jesus and uh, experience spiritual birth. They begin uh, a new love relationship with Jesus at that point, Um, and then uh, we'll engage in what we call spiritual formation or spiritual growth in a tribe group of some sort that helps you to grow, because we're all made to grow spiritually in community and family and relationship, right? And then begin serving God, and uh, serving God helps us grow in God as well. So, um, you know what a lot of Christ followers do is they want to talk And tell someone the message before they've been salt and light. And the reason that a lot of people never get on board with that process of coming to faith in Christ is because some Christian was never salt and light to them but always wanted to preach at them. Now, certainly, we have to have the courage to initiate the conversation about Jesus with people that we care about. But at the same time, uh, we first have to establish credibility uh, as uh, a person who is salt and light in the world. But beyond that, salt and light is creating ministries in the church and out in the marketplace, goods and services that contribute to human flourishing. Do you get that? Being salt and light is creating ministries goods and services that contribute to human flourishing for people, whether they're Christ followers or not. Doesn't the Bible in the red letter section tell us that Jesus, uh, that God makes his uh, son shine or rain on the just and the unjust alike, right? And so God loves people even if they don't believe in him. And we've seen throughout the history of the church that Christ followers have been salt and light in every facet of society. So if you look in the realm of art, Michelangelo created beautiful art that led people who don't even believe in God to be in awe of the beauty that is there. In the realm of education, the first 123 colleges and universities in the United States were actually created by Christian people to train ministers for the most part. In fact, um, Harvard was actually named after a pastor named John Harvard. Princeton was actually founded by a pastor named John Dixon, Sunday School in Great Britain, was created to teach little street kids how to read. Little kids that didn't have education, they were taught to read, utilizing a Bible as a tool uh, to help people learn to read. The Bible, the printing press, or the Gutenberg press—first one was created to print Bibles. Hospitals and healthcare facilities are created by Christ's followers. You never hear about atheist or agnostic hospital, but it's rather Baptist hospital, or Christus Santa Rosa, or um, you know Methodist. Hospital. Um, then, also in the abolition of slavery and race relations, Christ followers have led the way. If you go back in history, you would see the man pictured on screen, William Wilberforce in Great Britain, and then Martin Luther King Jr. here in the States, whose vision, message, and how he carried it out was thoroughly Christian. We also see Christ followers salting and lighting the world um, through the creation and naming. Of cities. So, for example, Philadelphia is named after a Bible city in the book of Revelation, the city. Of brotherly love. Then you have like Sao Paulo, Brazil, that's named after St. Paul. Uh, then right here in Texas, there's Corpus Christi, that means the body of Christ in San Francisco. That's named after St. Francis of Assisi, who had this great connection with nature. And I love animals. And so that's one of the reasons I love St. Francis. Because it was said that one time during a religious ceremony, there was a flock of birds that were disrupting the ceremony. And St. Francis was able to quiet these birds. And while we're in California, California we can look at San Diego and San Diego was named after Diego who was a Christ follower that went to great risks to take the message of Jesus to new peoples, and it said that he would sometimes pray for people and they would experience healing. But more important than any of those cities is San Antonio, right, where we're at. And that was named after St. Anthony or Antonio. It's a city created on Christian mission. In fact, the mission San Antonio de Valero, later called the Alamo, is a Christian mission mission so what that means is is that we're here today in our wonderful city and after church we're going to enjoy tacos and barbecue, and we enjoyed the Spurs, barbacoa and Big Red, the rodeo, fiesta, all because of a Christ follower with salt and light in the world. And furthermore, we worship right here in a part of downtown that's called St. Paul Square that's named after the great apostle. see? So Christ followers throughout the ages have created things for the cultural good. Now, that said, Maybe you're like me and you're like, well, you know, it's been a while since I've created and named a city or started a hospital. So do I get to be salt and light too? Well, I think that's what J.R. Tolkien was getting at when he created this scene in the in The Hobbit where Gandalf was asked why he would work with such an unassuming hero as Bilbo Baggins, the short little hobbit that had no unusual powers. And look at what Gandalf said. He said, Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. So when we are a dash of salt and a glimmer of light in real practical and small ways, it's like we're being the salt and light in this world. So when you choose to buy an H-E-B gift card for a friend that's in need, you're being salt and light. When you give an honest day's work at your work, you know, you have credibility at work when you work hard, right? When you do what you're asked to do there, you're being salt and light. When um, you buy Something for the person that's behind you in the drive-through, maybe pay for their bill. You're being salt and light when you take a street person for a meal, because you know people on the streets. You understand they're used to getting handouts, but very few times do they have one that sit down. Someone sit down, listen to their story, and dignify them in relationship as equals. Um, when you initiate a conversation with someone about Jesus, you're being salt and light. And I've I've often thought about what people in our community think about our church. And I'm not sure what everybody thinks about our church, but I do know this, is that I hope that people around this community would say, you know, if those people at City Church weren't here, this place wouldn't be as good of a city. They bring a cultural good here uh, because of the way that they serve. And, you know, as we think about being salt and light, I think that's on a lot of our hearts to do that. But how do you learn to to be salt and light in the world. Do you just get to define what that means for yourself or is there a source? And I think there is a source and Jesus would tell you that it's the book, the scriptures and look at what he says in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. He says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose and he goes on to say, I'll tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandments and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is a teacher of the book And if you understand the Scriptures rightly, you understand that uh, the Old Testament wasn't just put together and created by a bunch of old men sitting around a fire telling stories, smoking a peyote or something like that. That's the narrative that's been created in our culture. But actually, if you look into how the Old Testament books were passed down, they were passed down with great care. And then some people have spread the narrative that The New and Old Testament were combined and the books were included just for church and religious leaders to somehow control the masses with them. But that is the opposite of the truth. Actually, um, Christ followers had won the day in the culture and people who did want to control the massive jumped on board and used it in negative ways. But um, history archaeology both validate the veracity of the Scripture. In fact, there are many intellectual giants who believe and trust the Bible, men like C.S. Lewis, Sir William Ramsey, Dr. Nelson Gluck, John Dixon, as well as Dr. Francis Collins, who is the genome scientist who mapped human DNA and sees it as the language of God and wrote that book. But Jesus came to fulfill The law. Now, when you think law, when you see Jesus talking about the law, he's not talking about the laws of our land in America in modern times, but he's talking about a section of the Old Testament, of the Bible, known as the law, the first five books, you know. And so he says he came to fulfill those laws. But when you and I read the Old Testament today, it seems kind of weird, doesn't it? It seems kind of hardcore. You ever heard that? And have you ever, when you read through the Old Testament, of the Bible, you think, wow, this is, this is, pretty hardcore. I mean, what's this about? Um, well, I was helped to understand the role of the Old Testament in our lives and in the scriptures by this movie, um, Major Pain. Have we seen Major Pain? Okay, that's that's kind of a funny movie. Uh, I would see the Old Testament as kind of like a drill sergeant. Now, uh, in our city, a lot of people have been in the military, right? How many of you have been through basic training and had a drill sergeant? Just raise your hand real quick. Okay, okay, a bunch of people all over the room. Um, and let me ask you this question. Was your drill sergeant a real warm, cuddly, positive, and encouraging, like, K-Love kind of person? I mean, you know, was your drill sergeant someone that collected ceramic kittens, you know, and Russian nesting dolls? I mean, you know the answer, right? Drill sergeants are convincing you every day that you're lower than pond scum and they, they're doing it for a reason. I have this friend who was a drill sergeant in the military, her name is Jenny Strickland and she's tough as nails, man. I mean, it's like when the boogeyman's going to bed at night, he checks his closet for Jenny Strickland. I mean, she, she's not messing around. Um, and she explained to me that her role as a drill sergeant was to break you down in order to build you back up. Her purpose was not to hurt you in breaking you down and leave you down. It was to build you back up. And I believe that's part of the role of the Old Testament law. And if you look at Galatians, I think Paul picks up on this in chapter three, verse 24. Look at that text with me. He says, therefore, the law was our what? Tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. I think that part of the Old Testament's role is that we read it and we realize we can't live up to all that. We need help. And Jesus positions righteousness as like a gift that we can receive. And Jesus continues with the frustration of the Old Testament and fulfills it. But look at what he says in Matthew 5, I believe it's verse 20. Um, He says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that? If you're not a better person and more righteous than the Pharisees of the first century and the teachers of religious law, you do not get into the kingdom of heaven. You don't enter the kingdom of God. And so let me ask you this, this follow-up question. If you've gotta be more righteous than the Pharisees, Is there anyone in this room right now who would raise your hand and be willing to stand up and quote from memory for us all the laws of the Old Testament Torah? Anybody? I don't see anybody, and I can't either. Well, the Pharisees could quote all of those laws from the Old Testament. In fact, they could probably quote from memory the majority of the Old Testament of the Bible and lived it out. Most of them. We've got a problem, don't we? Because Jesus says, unless you're better than them, we can't even quote those laws, let alone live them out, can we? And I think if the truth were told, most of us have not lived up to our own moral standards, let alone the standards of God, have we? So we've got a big problem. And that's why we turn towards Jesus to receive grace and get, help. I was helped to understand this by uh, another pastor. His name is Tom Allen, and he's a, uh, currently a pastor. He's a former Army Ranger, and he writes about in his blog the day that he saw the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have we seen this movie, Saving Private Ryan? Okay. A lot of people have seen that movie. And Tom Allen, having been uh, an Army Ranger, was uh, so proud of the movie throughout much of it, but he said, in the last minute, it really went south. They did something in the movie that was just awful, and he went back and explains, you know, how the rangers, was so proud of them, and they took Omaha Beach, and then the, the rangers in this story got this assignment to go deep into enemy territory and save this guy named Private Ryan, and as they did this, they went through all kinds of skirmishes and fights, and it was hard, and some of them lost their lives. But finally, they got to where Private Ryan was, and they said, Hey, dude, come with us. I mean, we're, we're here to save you. We're, we're here to get you out of here. And Private Ryan, if you've seen the movie, you remember Private Ryan said, Well, look, I can't leave because some of my colleagues are here, and there's a battle coming this way, and if I leave, they're surely going to die. And so what do the rangers do? They stay there and they're going to help Private Ryan fight this battle that's coming their way. And if you've seen the movie, you remember that the battle was tough. I mean, it was bloody, it was gory, and most of them died. And one of the main characters in that movie was Tom Hanks' character. And in the end, after they'd finished winning the battle... He had been wounded, and he was laying on the ground, about to die. Everybody in the theater is crying because Tom Hanks' beloved character is dying, and Private Ryan leans over Tom Hanks' character, and this is where the movie went south for Tom Tom Allen. He said something. He said something to Private Ryan. He said, earn this. Earn this. And to a lot of people, that intellectually makes sense, right? Right? I mean, someone gave their life for you and you have to earn this. But Tom Allen said that was the wrong thing to say. And the reason it was the wrong thing to say is because for over 200 years, the slogan of the Rangers has been sua sponte, which means I choose this. You don't earn this. I chose to come and serve you, that's my job, it's my role to save your life, I choose this. And I want you to think about that as you look at this sculpture by artist Jesse Sandifer of Jesus on the cross. And as you see Jesus on the cross there and you look at that piece of art, do not allow your heart to say one of the most unbiblical things that you could ever say. Don't allow your heart to say, you have to earn this from Jesus. If Jesus were here today speaking to you, he would say, I chose this. Jesus would say, no one takes my life from me, but I sacrifice it willingly as a ransom for many. You receive his sacrifice as a gift. He did not come to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. And he says, no one takes my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. And are you tired, anyone, of trying to earn this? Trying to gut it out? Would you acknowledge that maybe you've not even lived up to your own moral standards, let alone the standards of God? And that's why Jesus came. With that in mind, let's bow for prayer. And every week people are brought here by the kind, loving hand of God through the circumstances of life, through the invite of a friend. And as we bow in prayer before Almighty God, maybe he drew you here for the purpose of receiving a ransom gift in Jesus. Never had a relationship with God before, and today is your day all you have to do is just talk to God in your own heart and mind and maybe just say something like this to God look God I've not lived up to my own standards let alone yours I've sinned and God right now in this moment I choose to believe that Jesus sua spontane for me He chose the cross for me. And I welcome you into my life. If you just prayed that to God, just raise your hand real quick. Just raise your hand. Good bunch of us all over. Good. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in people's hearts. So, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We don't take it for granted. We embrace it and love you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Well, today's Baptism Day and those of you that are registered for baptism, if you would just go ahead and stand up now and make your way over here to uh, your left-hand side of the stage and line up over here uh, by Pat. Just wave real quick, Pat, will you? And while they're making their way over, um, perhaps you've believed in Christ and not ever taken the first step of baptism. Well, I want to encourage you to do that today. You can actually do that today if you'd like to. You can go to the lobby; they've got clothes for you and towels and all that that you can borrow. And you know why I challenge you with that? It's because if you and I could see, if we could see all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, like what He helped us to avoid—the hell that He helped us to avoid in eternity and the heaven and paradise that he provided for us, I think we wouldn't just walk back to the lobby. We would run back there because our hearts are overflowing with gratitude to God for what he's done for us through the cross. And so if you'd like to be baptized today, don't hesitate. Just roll back there into the lobby and get registered and uh, come on in here and we'd love to see you baptized. And when people are baptized, here's what it represents. They're going under the water, which represents like a liquid grave. It's like they're buried with Christ in baptism when he was buried. But then when they're raised up like Jesus was raised from the dead, they're raised to walk a whole new life. And it's totally appropriate to hoop and to holler, to yell, clap, and scream, to encourage these who have said, I've now followed Jesus and walk in his new life and to glorify God the gospel and the good thing that he's done through the cross. So let's worship now as we observe baptism. Yeah, Lord, we're deciding to follow you and we thank you and give you credit, glory, and honor for all the lives that are being changed for your kingdom's sake that have moved the waters of baptism today. We hope you're pleased. Holy Spirit, welcome. And may we be inspired to be daily salt and light, to see more and more baptisms and change in the world. Thank you for what you're doing among us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, Amen. Will you guys go ahead and take Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.